Welcome to the 14th episode of the FBR Cast. This week I'm talking to Australian author Anita Bell. Review the official podcast, and I'm here today with Australian author Anita Bell. Hello. Now um, you're probably known more around the uh, fantasy circles as AA Bell. Is there a? Yes. Um, is that just your initials as your pseudonym? Well, it's some of my initials. <laughs> I picked the two that made the most sense without making a word. <clears throat> if you use all of my initials, it actually spells something, uh, another name. So <laughs> I just <laughs> chose two of them so it wasn't so complicated. Was there any particular reason why you went for a pseudonym instead of Anita Bell? Uh, yeah, I write, uh, I also write children's books and my children's books are G-rated, whereas the the Diamond Eyes trilogy has mature themes in it, so to help with the high, to help high schools in that be able to choose which books suit which age groups better, I have the pen name for the older readers for adults. So, could you tell me a little bit about yourself and um, what sort of led you down this path of becoming a writer? I loved sitting on my grandfather's knee, listening to all his stories. I absolutely adored that as a child. And when I grew up, <laughs> I bought my first property when I was 16, went into investment properties and stock market there for a while, retired when I was 26, and ever since then I've had this burning passion to tell stories in the vein that my grandfather used to, so that's where it stemmed from. The Diamond Eyes trilogy is based on a, a girl who can see back through time, and that's inspired from my own poor sight and the fact that my father and my mother-in-law are both nearly blind. One is blind and one is virtually blind. And uh, my own vision in being able to see the world slightly differently, it's an unusual perspective uh, condition that I have. So that's kind of how the series first sparked. So just for those who uh, haven't heard of the series, can you tell us just in a few words um, what, what the series is about and um, what, uh, what you were trying to achieve with the series? Yeah, well, Mira um, Chambers, as I said, she can see backwards through time. That's not a spoiler. It's actually on the front cover. But for the first, first book in the series, Diamond Eyes, she doesn't understand. She's been in orphanages and asylums for the 10 years of her life. She never really had a, a childhood. And so she is trying to discover um, the root of why, why she is having delusions of being able to see. She shouldn't be able to see anything. Uh, it's based on a, a real medical condition called uh, blind-sighted, yeah, similar to when you lose an arm and still feel the itch. Sometimes if you lose your sight, suddenly you still have um, your brain still thinks you can see certain things it fills things in so uh, it's inspired partly from that as well and 
I I just thought um, when my son asked me when he was very young, he asked me how eyes worked. I used my diamond engagement ring to show him how light can be bent. And so I guess that's how the title, um, the inspiration for the title Diamond Eyes grew from. And and because she couldn't see normally, I thought, well, she needs to be able to see something. So I made her see backwards through time using the, the latest theories, actually, on how sound and wave sound and um, light waves travel. Very exciting if you're into that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, it was it was definitely one of the things I noticed when I was reading the book that there was some very um, detailed science in there. There was a lot of mention on string theory, um, writing of equations up on the blackboard. Uh, <laughs> is, do you have a background in this type of science? Um, I have just always loved math. I'm a little bit of a math nut. Um when I paid my first mortgage off in three years, I did it using high, basic high school math, um, no formal qualifications in it whatsoever. So I just love playing with um, with formulas. And of course, because I had really poor eyesight in school, uh, I couldn't see the blackboard. I used to have to be able to read myself and figure things out for myself and, and cross-check things for myself. So if I didn't, um, if I didn't learn math, fairly soon, you know, fairly early on by myself, then um, I wouldn't have coped very well at all. Mira Chambers in the series, she said, if you think math is hard in English, you want to try it in Braille. (laughs) Yeah, so did you you have to do any um, additional research when you were trying to come up with the science behind, or the science fiction behind the books? Oh, heck, no, no. There's plenty of really clever scientists who did all that for me. Um, in fact, on YouTube, there was a series by a wonderful scientist, Mr. Green, who has a, a, a video with him teaching his Labrador how to, string theory. And I, and I figure, you know, if the dog could learn it, I could, <laughs> at least well enough to reinterpret it for the story. So, Yeah, I think it comes across really well. Um, I'm, granted, I've got an um, engineering background, so it was, wasn't too bad for me, but I still, I still think it was communicated quite well. That Thank you. Well, the, the object of it is to keep the science in it in the background for those who enjoy that sort of thing. But actually, if you, if you, if you're not a mathaholic, if you're not a crazy like you know you or I in that direction, then um, even you know artistic, creative people, and I am basically a, a um, you know a Pisces who's into all the. Um, creative side of life as well, painting and, and sculpting and and all that side of things. Um, people who, who who like to think on that side of the brain can just whiz on through and stick, uh, stick to the romance and the fun and the plot and the explosions and all that sort of thing. So uh, there's a little bit in it for everybody, I like to think. Yeah. So... Um... We mentioned that um, your main character, Mira Chambers, as being a blind and institutionalised young woman, um, and she had been institutionalised from a very early age, um, a lot of family issues in there as well. Um, was it hard for you to write this character from that oh, sort of no. point of view? Um, yeah. No, no. In fact, that was one of 
have the fun. You see a lot of movies and books that show the really dark, um, wretched side of institutionalization. And to a certain extent, that's based in fact. But I have worked for 10 years um, in a, the very spooky, arguably haunted halls of a century-old asylum in southeast Queensland, uh, and it had not that long ago been converted to a healthcare facility, a, a kind of sanctuary for handicapped, severely handicapped people. Um, and in inside the facility, there were a thousand staff who were 24 committed 24 hours a day, loving, caring, fun environment for all all the clients, clients, not patients. And um, I wanted to showcase some of that. Mira's blind, so she can't see, you know, the facial implications of when someone's having a lend of her. So, so to her, she could only see the facility when it was a penal colony with the convicts being whipped and tortured to death. And she has a windowless cell, so she has no no light, no breeze, which, so being a blind person who begs for a window is a little bit, you know, odd, but she has reasons that she needs these things. And um, to give her concept of night and day that you don't get through light, you can get it through other senses. And and. Uh, having worked with clients who are who are blind and um, have other difficulties, and being able to um, enlighten and make their days so amazing, and, and to meet unusual, quirky, fun, fabulous characters, and to be able to bring them to life again in the pages of fiction is just been a really fabulous roller coaster for me. It it allows me to create a really rich background for my truly fantastical characters. Yeah. Um it definitely comes aclo- comes across as being authentic. Um at least at least from my limited um experience with um the uh, a blind institutionalized people. <laughs> Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, I've had some readers say that it's they see the world more clearly through Mira's eyes than they ever have before through their own, and she's blind, which is a really high compliment. And um, uh, for every field of specialist that I introduce in the book, um, I have actually spoken to a real person in the field. So when I speak to people who have been, you know, to NASA working on the International Space Station's life raft. Well, I actually spoke to someone who did that. And when I speak to some, you know, when I'm discussing the the police side of things and what it's like to be locked up in a cell, well, I just went to my local police sergeant and said, hey, can you lock me up? You know, show me what it's like in that. And, and you learn lots of amazing details. Um, there was... I had to go. It, it's really hard. You must suffer for your craft sometimes. I had to go on a luxury Pacific cruise so that I could experience, you know, first class aboard a luxury ship. Wow, that must have been really rough. It was. It was because my um, 
my travel agent, when they're trying to book me onto one, actually discovered that because it's a cruise ship, you have to pay for each berth. So it was actually cheaper for me to buy a family ticket and take my whole family rather than travel alone as a as an author. So I had to actually take my family on that luxury Pacific cruise. It's really, you know. <laughs> that sounds even worse. I don't know how you did it. Ah, oh, me neither. But actually, um, it's amazing the the little details that kids will notice that you might not. Like a shower drain runs along the side of a shower in a ship, so that each time it lifts, at least every time, it, every second time it lifts one way or the other, but then the water drains out, or that the toilets suck instead of flushing. You know, it's those little details that kids notice better. So it's I actually find it's wonderful to take them with me when I'm researching amazing new settings. Yeah, so I, I suppose uh, some of their um, observations and details have made their way into your books as well. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Um, the researching the islands on the um, on Moreton Bay or in Moreton Bay, there's 365, one for each day of the year. And I needed one that was an amalgam of a, of a couple of them, so I made my... my fictional version of Moreton Bay, a leap year version, and gave it an extra island. Um, but to research that, that I, I had to uh, find somewhere I could bring in a submarine. Moreton Bay is extremely shallow, uh, so I got a research vessel from uh, Jacob's Well from the education department. We went out and we actually found that you can bring a sub in because the, the, shipping, the main shipping channel through to Brisbane Port is... The depths in and around the channel are not what the marker boys say they are. So um, really amazing, fun research that's um, actual, actually helpful. Yeah, so um, I suppose on, on that um, leap year Moreton Bay Island, um, <laughs> I, I, picked, I picked three of your books um, fairly early on that it was a... Um, Southeast Queensland type of setting, um, or at least in Diamond Eyes, which is the one I've read so far. Um, yeah. Do you do you find the need to be, you know, perfectly representing the Australian landscape, or is it just how easy is it to just take liberties and um, you know, invent things and just? I actually I, find I, it's very much easier to write within the real setting. Yeah. Um, but for Lakeba, the, the island, Lakeba Isle, where the Serenity Centre is, um, that's the asylum where Mira begins her journey, uh, it is attached to the mainland by a bridge, a fictional bridge, down near um, Jacob's Well. But Jacob's Well is, a, is close to the border between um, New South Wales and Queensland. It's very close to the Gold Coast. And it's a very big sugarcane area. So when they're driving through the cane field, they're the real cane fields from the area around there. Um, and the bridge, the derelict bridge that is in the story, because there's the derelict bridge and the real bridge. Derelict bridge is actually a real bridge that used to go across to an island um, that used to be there, it's just mudflats submerged now, where there used to be hemp grown by convicts 
uh, over 100 years ago. So um, it's still basically uh, factual, but the lines between um, truth and fiction are, are as blurry as the, the layers of time through which Mirror sees. Excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah, I imagine it would be quite you know, easy easy to research the actual places and a little bit harder to come up with uh, plausible alternatives um, where you set your story, um, but still still within the real world. Do you have people who pick up on that and go, hey, you um, <laughs> if, got that? If critics are going to pick up on anything... Yeah. Um, there's been one who said that they criticised the fact that they didn't know from the first page where in the world she was. And I was like, well, duh, she's in a windowless cell. She's been drugged for 10 years and she doesn't even know if it's night or day. So how the heck is she supposed to know? And if she doesn't know, why should anybody else? So um, we discovered where in the world she is through Mira's eyes precisely. So we only discover things as she does. We only discover how old she is when she does because of how long she's been sedated and and um, and treated and because of her medications and that. There's even blurry lines between her knowing exactly how old she is or isn't. So um, when I introduce readers to my character's world, we really do. There's... There's no shortcuts taken, no cheater's way um, out of, you know, just telling them where we are. You learn the world through their eyes at the same stage that they do. And the other um, comment that I've had from critics is um, it's been described as a fantastical dystopian view of um, Moreton Bay regions uh, settlements from Brisbane to the Gold Coast and out onto the islands um, through the last century, which um, it, it's really interesting to see how other people view view the setting of my books, having put them in the behind the eyes of my main character and letting them see out with their own perspectives through those eyes. Yeah, I, I suppose that provides a good segue to my next question, which was um, the critical reception of your Mirror Chambers novel of your Mirror Chambers novels. Now, I believe um, you've won two awards already: uh, the Norma K. Hemming Awards. Um, uh, but, two of the the first two books so far between them have yeah. picked up three awards. Yeah. Um, Diamond Eyes has won two, and Diamond Eyes and Hindsight have both won the top award for science fiction and fantasy, the Hemming Award, Norma K. Hemming Award, um, which is for excellence in science fiction and fantasy. Um, it's judged on critical themes, you know, social critical themes like uh, uh, how it's portrayed in science fiction. Science fiction and fantasy, as you probably know, is an excellent... Um, they're both excellent platforms for being able to portray uh, tough topics to discuss in any other genre. Tough topics like religion or, um, you know, racism or freedom or um, all of those topics. Being blind, Mira can't tell what, you know, colour people are. 
that's removed from her. As she says, it doesn't matter what colour you are. What matters is whether you, what really matters is whether you can see how you see the world or if you can see the world. So, um, and religion. I mean, she's been removed from her family for so long. She she needs to go through a process of you know uh, understanding, learning all the different types and and finding out whether she wants to, you know, choose one or go another direction. And then, and the scientist also provides an interesting perspective on that, one of the scientists, because he has tokens for every religion <laughs> around his neck, uh, which, of course, is in contradiction to most. Many scientists don't have, um, you know, they're atheists usually, so... Um, uh, there's all these different perspectives and topics that I can explore through um, all these different themes through the one character without making it a big hodgepodge by keeping it through a single focal point and being able to touch just just touch over all these different other areas to make it so much more real for people. Yeah. Uh, I remember reading um, in the the scientists were deliberating about an equation that proved God. Um, is that is that an actual equation that you've um, found? Yeah, there's two it? actually, of course, and and it's exactly as quoted in the book. Both of them. One, of course, has been around since um, the court of Catherine the Great. So I'm surprised it's not quoted more often in in fiction in the real world as well as in fiction. And, of course, the other one that's quoted from string theory and, according to the scientist in the novel, they cross-check. <laughs> and, uh, and, and of course, that, again, is inspired from real life. You know, Ions, as one of the characters says, Einstein believed in God. And, and then there's that very famous knight um, scientist who discovered the quark and saw something so amazing that he's now a priest. <laughs> so... Um, you know, the, there's all these little amazing things, snippets of life that I've seen and witnessed and picked up over the years that I've been able to fold into the, fold seamlessly into the story so it doesn't seem like they're all standing out. So they flow so um, smoothly and uh, naturally as part of Mira's discovery of what life is. Yeah, it's it's very much um showcasing the idea of uh you know science um proving God in this case. Um do you have a lot of people, a lot of critics or reviewers picking up on um that equation and your exploration of religion? No, none actually. <laughs> the way that I um present it uh leaves it open for anyone to make their own decision on it that that's the object of the of the subject as it's raised it's it really only um covers a small part of one of the early chapters and that's um to set up for later on down the down the track because i needed something complicated on the blackboard that mira could see when she um to prove that she can see something. So I put a, um, a string theory formula on the blackboard uh, early on in the story and the reason that that goes onto the blackboard is two characters arguing uh, uh, as to whether or not there's a god. And 
um, then later in the story when Mira comes in and everyone's saying, oh, you're blind, you can't see a thing, and, and she uses a piece of chalk to trace over where the string formula used to be. It's been rubbed out now, but she can she can trace it because she can see it. So, or, or at least the yester ghost of it she can see. So um, even though it's um, a complicated theory, to look at and my poor publishers had to actually um, import brand new fonts and and figure out how to actually portray it properly in a fictional um, book template which was a a wonderful trick all by itself Um, then to have it show up in the back of the story so it's actually plot critical it's not just there as window dressing or anything like that. It's plot critical to a turning, major turning point with the characters realizing, holy heck, either she really, someone's taught her string theory or she really can't see what was written here in the past. So, um, it, you know, it, it's a fun way of showcasing in a really easy, fast, it, it only takes two sentences really one at the beginning of the book and one towards the end or towards that particular um, turning point to be able to portray it and yet in the meantime it's also touched on all these other very juicy fabulously interesting topics that um, so many people can have so many different interpretations on without actually having to challenge them too much so I get no criticism for it that's excellent i on on your comment about the fonts, I did actually notice that when I was reading through that they they got the equations exactly right and that they um, got all the um, operators all the right symbol the right symbology and everything there. Um, you have no idea how difficult that was for a fictional publisher and typesetter. So kudos to them. And also you'll notice that a lot of every Every part at the beginning of each had of the, the braille parts. Yeah. Yes, there's a braille font there yeah. as well. These these are the first books for sighted people, fictional books that have ever been published with braille. So my publishers and my typesetters went out of their way <laughs> to um to acquire braille fonts that they may never use again, but um, they're fabulously wonderful in these particular books. I look at them and I just want to touch them to see if I can feel them, but of course we can't. Yeah, so um, are you uh, fluent in Braille? Um, being, uh, having the... Fluent, no. <laughs> fluent, like, fluent like drying mud. How's that? <laughs> um, no, but like one of the characters in the book, I can read it by sight which is ironic. <laughs> uh, so that's why, um, that, that's why the Braille is actually in the book because it, it is also plot critical. Um, when Mira was born, before her parents died, she lived in a crown of tree houses in a forest overlooking the bay. And every branch, because her mother was blind as well, properly blind her mother embossed braille poetry into the branches and braille quotes why you know wise words in that to help steer her um inspirationally through life away from problems and that sort of thing 
and Mira calls them her poet trees. And, of course, um, that causes some confusion when she's uh, in the asylum. She's trying to convince people about her poet. She just wants to go to her poet trees, and they just keep giving her books of poetry and saying the plural of poetry is still poetry. <laughs> so um, uh, it, everything with the Braille poetry is like uh, each quote has a quote from one of the trees, and each of the book has this. And each quote is critical to the part in the story. Um, for example, the Marcus Aurelius quote that everything we see is a perspective, not the truth. Um, it's almost as if these these um, scholars <laughs> um, and very wise men from BC and shortly AD uh were actually knew that one day this book was going to be written because some of the ma magical quotes that they talk about um, that I've used in the book would seem as if they were written exactly precisely for the book. Yeah, I didn't I didn't realize that they were the actual they were actually quotes from the poetries. Um, that's a really neat little Easter egg there. Um, <laughs> yes, there's very subtle yeah. things all the way through through the book. Um, by the time uh, you've read all three books, if you go back to the beginning and read the first one again, then you will see that there are many layers in the books um, that you don't fully appreciate until you come back and go through them again. And I wanted that effect because the way that Mira sees slow light um, the light that travels slower than normal light that permits her to see the past is um, is layered. The she sees it in time layers that she filters through different coloured sunglasses. And being able to see through layers, I wanted the story layered as well, so that each time you read it, you see something different, just as when each time she revisits a place, she can see something different. Um, and, of course, there's the second character, um, Freddie, who, Freddie Leopard, who um, he can hear the future. He's another patient at the, at, the, um, at the center, and I call him a patient because he's been there for much longer. So he's a patient as well as the new client. And um, that the first quote in Diamond Eyes is is for him. Uh, no great genius has ever existed without some touch of madness, and that's of course Aristotle. So um, yes, each part has has a very um, poignant quote from time-honored scholars um, who can who whose quotes seem to apply so well. Um, Desiderius Erasmus, give light and the darkness will appear of itself. So it will disappear of itself. So um, I, I just have always been a, a collector of wise words from other people. And it's been really a lot of fun and um, also very... Uh, it's been like a really good mind game to be able to fold in all these different layers. Yeah, um, I I did pick up on Freddie Leopard having a bigger role in the rest of the series, but now that you're saying that there's so many more layers, I'm, 
I'm interested. I want to go back and read the first one right now and see if I can pick up on as many as I can. Um, well, you'll need to read the next book first because I guess the so. first players don't. You need, yes, you need to end this <laughs> before you can read the first bit. And, yes. <laughs> it, actually, to that effect, that's one of the reasons why it doesn't really matter which order you read the books in. Um, of course, traditionally, you start at the beginning, so it'd be Diamond Eyes, then Hindsight, and then Leopard Dreaming. But um, it really doesn't matter if you start at the end and work in the opposite direction um, because, the, because of the way it's layered. So you've got a fairly heavy um, sort of science, scientific, um, I don't know what you call it, a lot, a lot of science um, throughout these novels. Do you... You consider them not throughout. Um, it's only mainly in the first book, okay. and it's only mainly in the beginning of the first book when I'm explaining um, right. why I wanted to justify using real science as to how this could possibly be. And uh, I like my science fiction to be very classy, rooted, extrapolated really from the from the roots of real science. So. Uh, I, that's why I did that in the very early stages was just to, to justify it. Mira um, starts in a very dark place in her life at the beginning of the book. You might have noticed at the beginning of Diamond Eyes the pace is very slow yeah. compared to how it, it speeds up later on. And then the next two books accelerate further. In, an, in most modern trilogies, the pace is similar for all books in a series. It'll start, you know, sedate and speed up and have the roller coaster of emotions between it. And each of those books is like that. But if you put each of the three, read each of the three books in series, you'll also notice there's an overall roller coaster. That be, I started Mira in a very low, dark place because she ends the trilogy on an extreme high and in order to get a, a wonderful overall um, spiraling <laughs> roller coaster that that ends up um, I wanted I wanted to fit in the full gamut of emotion so to speak so that's why um, you really won't get to appreciate the full depth of the series until after you've read all three so you definitely consider consider it to be science fiction then or fantasy or a mix of both? Well, um, people who love science fiction read it and they say, well, it's a bit light on the science fiction. It seemed more like a mainstream thriller to me. And then uh, people who read it as an urban fantasy uh, say, wow, that was a really good romance with the... <laughs> With the, um, you know, set in with a bit of science fiction. And then the romance people will look at it and say, um, you know, wow, that was pretty interesting crime story that was going on in the background of that, that romance with a touch of science fiction. So, um, it's really quite amazing the number of different ways. I suppose it really depends on what genre you like to read as to whether or not you can see it in, in the series. Yeah, which is I, another I, rare aspect, I suppose. <laughs> it's unusual to have books that are like that. Yeah, I, de I definitely noticed a distinct change in gears, where the first half of Diamond Eyes seemed to be a sort 
sort of medical mystery, medical thriller, and then the second half became more of a crime fiction. Um, as soon as she's out. The difference she, is, yeah. uh, and, and one of the quotes, of course, that underlines that is that um, intelligence grows as soon as it discovers um, a purpose for itself. So that's why the um, the pace and general overall feel of the story really begins to take off, and that's based in you know solid scientific psychological tr- you know behaviour. That's the way the brain operates. So um, I, I just one more of the fun little challenges that I had an opportunity to fold into the story. Excellent. So the the trilogy is finished. It's all wrapped up. Um, Leopard Dreaming came out about a month ago, I think it was. Mm. Um, or is it? <laughs> um, and that was my next uh, question. Is it? Is I had one of my fans uh, contact me to say um, they're very hardened, um, very hardened uh, science fiction fantasy readers and... Um, they said that this book actually gave them shivers at the end, which was a pretty good compliment coming from them. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so do you, are you planning on revisiting the world that you've created, um, the characters that you've created um, in the future, or have you got... Oh, absolutely. Oh. Um, yeah. The trilogy is finished, uh, but because of the talent that Mira has, you know, being able to see the past she can solve any crime so if i um if i wanted to there's so many different directions that i are still left to explore for instance wouldn't it be great to have a story where she actually does run into a real ghost um you know when she's got all these other yester ghosts you know, the ghosts of the past or what she calls the after images of people. It's the slow light still traveling that shows her what people look were doing so she can witness history. But if she actually has a real ghost in amongst there, how much fun can we have with that topic? And and the fact that she can solve any crime. So um, there's definitely a few murder mysteries in there <laughs> waiting to have fun with. Of course, Mira could spoil any uh, crime writer's day because instead of being able to write a whole book, it would be like the business card version because, oh, you can't solve the crime, bring your Mira Chambers. Okay, you know, two seconds later she's seen who it is and can point them to the evidence that they tried to get rid of. But, of course, Mira has this knack of always um, visiting the scene of a crime just as the killer is returning to it. So every time she tries to solve a crime, she ends up in worse trouble than had she left the whole thing alone. So there's, even though she could solve any crime, there's still plenty of fun to have with her. Excellent. So um, I was moving on a little bit, um, what's a day in the life of Anita Bell like? Um, you've mentioned <laughs> you've mentioned that you've uh, retired. Now, um, well, traditionally, yeah. traditionally retired, and um, I'm assuming now you write full time. Well, I I write when the stories grip me, so that's usually from about 3 a.m. in the morning through to about um, 
7.55 when my alarm tells me that I have to emerge into the cruel real world momentarily to get my kids to school and, you know, just throw some food at them if they haven't done so already themselves. And um, then I come back, I have a farm, so I have to do all the family type things. Um, and I need usually about 50 hours a year to stay retired from managing my investments and that. So um, somewhere along the way I'll do that. And then, of course, there's always the friendly tax office who wants their bite of the pie. So there's, um, you know, half an hour of office work, I suppose, to do a day. Sometimes it blows out to be, you know, all day during book launch times when you've got lots of paperwork and interviews to do. (laughs) And (laughs) be they written or, um, you know, recorded or whatever. And, of course, with each of those, there's... You've you've been very kind to me, actually, by having a recorded phoner because that means I haven't had to drag a rake through my hair. I haven't had to find the rake in the first place. So um, there's a lot of little nitty-gritty things that, you know, if you've got reporters coming out to your house, as I often do, well, that means cleaning up the house, you know, all those (laughs) mundane little things that you like not to you know, <laughs> wish that you didn't have to do, but it's all all part of it. So you learn you learn to write or think or plot around um, your normal day life. So um, washing the dishes isn't washing the dishes. It's you know plotting what how my character is going to murder someone else in the messiest slash nicest way. So, and I use nice in a gruesome. <laughs> gruesome um, definition there. Sounds pretty hectic. (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever sleep? I'm not entirely sure. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm one of these people who um, I I design my dreams. So (laughs) my dreams are, excuse me, what I want them to be. And then I play with them. I play with stories and writing and then I write them down. So to me, I'm not really ever a I suppose, but I, I like it that way. It's very productive. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do see you on Twitter at uh, all sorts of hours of the morning. So unusual, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when for one of the books, uh, I think it was um, Hindsight. I wrote for fifty-four hours straight, and I didn't notice the time going because. My it was holidays and I was the only person in the house. Everyone else had gone to their friends' places and my husband was up, you know, visiting um, relatives. And uh, so I had the house to myself. And the sun come up, sun went down. Sun come up, sun went down. And I was still. I thought, gee, the moon's bright tonight, and it's sun. It's dawn. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, those those computer minutes can be very productive at times. <laughs> Do you have those big writing sessions very often? Um, I was talking to um, Will Elliott a few weeks ago, and he said that he would sometimes go on benders for you know, weeks straight of writing for 20, 22 hours and then sleeping maybe for a couple of hours and then back into it again just 
to yeah, massive that's kind of the norm for me, I'm afraid. But it it wasn't intentional. It never started out intentionally that way. I had uh, my firstborn son did not sleep for the first three years of his life, and uh, he finally slept all the way through one night um, for a fortnight, and then my second son popped out, and I use the word popped lightly because it was a 32-hour session, and um, we he didn't sleep for the next three years. So um, I had baby in my arm for six years straight, basically, um, and I had to do something. You can't play Space Invaders or whatever with with one with only one hand, but you can type one handed. <laughs> I kept dying trying to play computer games one handed, so. Like that's how I initially how I I came into writing all those hours. Oh, um, right, well, I think that's about all the questions that I have for you. I've got one more that we like to ask everyone who comes on to Fantasy Book Review, and um, that is, do you have um, three favourite or most inspirational fantasy novelists or fantasy novels or fantasy series? This is a great one to go on the spot. This is like like I I do, but they're not anything that I've brought to my own writing. I call them my holiday books. So so they're when I when I find other stories inspirational, they're in genres away from what I write. So that would be uh, Anne McCaffrey's um you know the Dragon series, Perm, and uh, I love. Um, H.G. Wells, you know, um, and um, I think Time Machine, obviously. Anything with time in it, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that whole mind game you can get with the, with all the different ways you can play with time. And I like to hope that I've come up with a, a fresh new take on it that hasn't been done before. I haven't, haven't found anyone who's done it this way. So um, there's that, and then my other um, genre that I really like uh, is um, is military action and adventure, and I like to fold that into my science fiction in the veins of Stargate and Star Trek, I suppose, but Earthbound. So, and I have actually edited two books for Stargate, which um, I'm quite proud of, <laughs> but the as for inspiration, gosh, the, the, the list is so long. They're, they're just the three that are immediately right at the top for me. Where does um, Tolkien fit in with your um, favourite favorite fantasy novels? Uh, there's a lot of guys at uh, Fantasy Book Review who hold Tolkien up to the highest regards and then you've got people like me who go, yeah, it might I be have to wonder. I have to wonder how many of those do it because it's fashionable too. Um, I read it before it was fashionable to be into him and um, I have to say that some of the hobbits were... I'd speed read through those those segments because I I couldn't understand why they didn't just fly an owl to Mordor, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really, if the owl could pick him up on the way home, why couldn't he just take him there in the in the first place. Um, 
so there was, you know, when I get to things like that, I'll just speed read through them. And um, I, I will not um, say anything bad against anyone who's had the guts to write and do so well with fiction. Um, um, but I did love um, the the book, those books, long before Lord, of, you know, Lord of the Rings, and that long before they were fashionable to love them. And I was introduced to them from my husband, actually, who was um, who's known me since birth, which possibly sounds a little creepy, <laughs> but um, it's only because he was in the same street as me. Um, uh, so, I mean, he, he introduced me to it because he'd read them before they were fashionable to read them too. And, and, um, I'm really glad that he did actually, because I'd never read anything, um, going to a heavy school where all of our books had been washed away by a great flood. Um, there wasn't very much choice to read in the libraries at the time. So, um, um, yeah, I'm really glad that he did introduce me to them. Excellent. Well, um, your three books, Diamond Eyes, Hindsight and Leopard Dreaming, are all out in Australia. Um, are they all out internationally as well? Or Yes, yes, yes they are. Um, I'd like to say translated into Braille as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But um, that's still coming. Um, yeah, so uh, on all the big bookstores... All the big bookstores can get them, um, Amazon and, you know, all of them online. Fishpond has world free postage as well. So Awesome. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Anita. Um, thanks for taking some time out of your night to talk to me. And um, you know, hopefully we'll have you back soon with another um, Mira Grant novel. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. For show notes and links to the music we use by Bart Stoop, please head on over to fantasybookreview.co.uk. You can follow the show on Twitter at FanBooRev and at Facebook at FantasyBookReview. And you can follow Josh and Ryan on Twitter at JoshSPill and RyanL1986. You can, and we hope you will, email the show at blog at fantasybookreview.co.uk. 